All right, let's uh, begin with the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your your goodness to us that we could uh, uh, freely be here uh, tonight, that we could uh, spend time uh, looking into your word, uh, spend time uh, sharing the uh, great things that you have done, uh, spend time reflecting on your word and, and praying and singing, and, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the just the, the great privilege that it is to uh, to worship you, that we have been made new, that we have given new life, and that uh, we, uh, because of that, are able to even uh, come before you and worship, Lord, as you are worthy of all our praise and affections, and I pray that uh, you would uh, help us as we look into your word now, that you would uh, open up our eyes to the truths, that you would uh, work within us through your word to uh, grow in our in our thinking of you, that uh, you would uh, uh, be big in our thinking, Lord, and that we would not have a low view of who you are. Uh, we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be uh, looking into Ephesians. Uh, when I was asked to preach, this is what I've been studying, so this is where I went. That's always the easiest place to go, is what you've been looking at. And you probably noticed that we're kind of jumping over the first couple of verses just to get into the, to the meat of things here. But I thought I'd just give a, a little quick background. Uh, could spend quite a bit of time on the background because there's a lot to be able to develop about uh, the church in Ephesus. Uh, from the book of Acts, we have a lot of background information there, and there's there's other historical evidence that we have that uh, by way of background. But thought we'd just jump right in. And uh, simply enough, this is a, an epistle from Paul to the church in Ephesus. You're... you're Bible might have a note that the word Ephesus doesn't appear in some of the early manuscripts, but there's pretty good evidence that it is to the church in Ephesus and that, you know, really the, the intent was to have it be a circular letter. It went to Ephesus first as a, as a larger church, and then it was circulated around. Uh, and this was one of the um, prison epistles, so this was written uh, along with uh, Philippians and uh, Colossians and Philemon. And it's either one of one or two of uh, Paul's imprisonments that's typically uh, considered here. It's either when he was in Caesarea, which would have been uh, in like 57 to 59, or when he was in Rome, which is in 62. And I think for the most part, it's believed that was when he was in, in Rome under house arrest that he, he wrote these words. So that's, that's just by way of background here. Uh, uh, pretty simple because I wanted to get right into the text. It's a rather lengthy portion, and in the original it is all one sentence. So one of the, the longest sentences, if not the longest, I can't remember, the Colossians one might be longer by words, I can't remember, but uh, uh, quite a long sentence here, and you know, going through it, it's, uh, I'm not... Um, not that sharp, so I had to go through it very slow to make sure that I could figure out what each portion was modifying and where it fit. And 
uh, really had to spend time diagramming this sentence out to figure out, all right, what actually goes where and how does this um, develop through. So it takes quite a bit of time because it's such a lengthy sentence and he just keeps building on thoughts and then he goes back to thoughts. And it's, um, I've heard the analogy that at, at times when you get a lot of information, it's like drinking from a fire hose. And I feel like Paul broke the dam on this one, that it just, he just opened right up. And a lot of commentators consider this his uh, greatest theological work, that he just develops a lot of theology. It's done in a concise way. And he basically right off, he just lets it rip. He just goes right into it and he gets right into the deep theology um, to focus everyone's attention on who God is. So just by, by a further way of introduction, uh, partly why I was studying this book uh, had to do with a couple of passages that I was considering. And one of them is in uh, Exodus chapter 33. And it's when Moses asked God to see his glory. And partly his response there is he says... Um, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So part of his response there is, is those words. And then I was considering uh, the, the message that Jesus has for the church of Ephesus and, and Revelation. And I just wanted to read that, uh, you know, with, with that idea of God showing his glory and what is penned to the church in Ephesus. So this is uh, Revelation chapter 2, starting... For some reason, the numerals didn't print. So Revelation chapter 2, I think it starts in verse 1. I have it in my notes, but the numbers don't show up. It must be a different color. So he writes this, uh, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, that you, your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and remove the lampstand out of its place. And I'll stop there for now. So my, my thinking in going to this book was after reading through that and, and thinking on that, uh, thinking that God and his his sovereignty and his providence, uh, knowing what would happen, you know, penned this book here of Ephesians to, you know, counteract a problem such as that. So I think that's why he starts off with this, this big explosion of just describing all that God has done, all the great work that God has done, uh, the great character of who God is, and and all of really just the, the rich theology here. Um, and, it, and it lines up with what Tim was talking about this morning, right? Where in this passage, we get to know God. God reveals himself. He talks about all that he has done. And in knowing God and focusing on God, we should be glorifying God 
And it'll also develop in us that, that love for God, that we will have that love, that, that love like we have when we first come to know God uh, through Christ. And additionally, I was just thinking about another passage that that's, doesn't really line up along the same ideas, but it's, it's really when uh, Jesus is talking to, to Simon, and uh, you, you know the, the, the story about uh, forgiveness. The, well, let, me, let me read it here. It says, uh, this is in Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 40. And really the, the, the main point I want to get out of this is just um, the understanding of they're forgiven much, so they love much. That's, that's the main idea. So having an understanding of all that God has done for us should work within us a greater love for God. Right? I mean, that's how we would cultivate that in our lives, is having a greater understanding of who God is. Uh, so the parable that's given here is, And Jesus answered Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, sa- and he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Uh, so that's, I just wanted to pick up on that, that, that idea there, because that's really uh, where I was in my thinking when I entered into it, studying this particular book, is, is getting a deeper understanding of who God is, uh, you know, struggling through the, the doctrines here because they're deep doctrines and putting it all together and thinking through it in order to uh, cultivate a better understanding of who God is and how God has uh, revealed himself. I think one of the difficulties in presenting a, a deep passage like this that I was thinking about is it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a daunting task in that you want to say uh, what God has said. You want to be clear on what God has said. You don't want to say less than God has said, and you don't want to say more than God has said. You want to sit right in that pocket of what he has said and how he has revealed himself. And the other difficulty is, is uh, all of us as you know, finite, sinful, uh, corrupted beings trying to accurately describe uh, an infinite, holy, perfect God. You know, language uh, fails us at times. It's hard to, to wrap your head around some of the concepts. Um, but this is how God has revealed himself in, uh, by the uh, grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll work our way through it and see how God has, has revealed himself uh, to us. And I think one of the, the goals that I have in, in this this evening is, uh, for, for each of us, uh, for myself, is to develop a better understanding, to, to reflect on the, the deep truths about who God is, all that God has done, uh, really to, again, to cultivate that love of God within us, uh, to consider all that he has done for us, really to, to get ourselves prep, prepped for the week too, right? It's uh, we, can, we can get bogged down with different things during the week and to have in our minds the greatness of who God is, all that he has done for us, his love shown toward us uh, should help us to uh, trust more, love more, to have genuine uh, thanksgiving, to have genuine love, to have genuine 
uh, joy in that relationship, and it should be one of those things that uh, helps us throughout the week. And, and I think, generally speaking, that is one of the, the beauties of the design of the church that God has, right, that we can encourage one another in the Word and help us throughout the week. And as I've been reading through Ephesians, uh, that is one of the, the great themes within the book is the importance of the church. So as I read through it, I'd like to read through the passage and just have you kind of take note of a, a couple of themes and or a couple of key ideas. Uh, one is the theme that he starts with is that blessed be God. Uh, take note of how often God is the one that is acting and take note of how all these actions take place in Christ. Uh, the, the terminology in Christ or other variations of that through use of the pronouns uh, occurs 11 times in this passage. It's a very important piece of how God has, has worked. So uh, keep that in your mind as we kind of read through this passage. And I'll, I'll try to read it as if it's one sentence as it's intended, but it's, it's, rather, it's rather lengthy. And we have periods in there where they're manufactured periods, I guess. So starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. With a view to administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things upon earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him also you have, you, you also, after listening to the message of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So there's really the, the theme that he sets off in the beginning is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then after that, all the description is, is in reference to that blessing. And a, the, the formula that he uses here is, you see it in the Psalms in a few instances, where it says, blessed be God, and then it uses um, kind of an explanation. It's in the form of a, who has or who has done uh, the Psalms use that in a number of places to explain why uh, God is to be blessed. It gives us a reason. It, it gives us a basis, a theological basis of why we should uh, bless God. So really, in, in verse 1, we have where he sets forward the, the theme. And the idea of, of bless is to 
be worthy of praise. Um, it's, it's, a, it's not the word that you would see in, in other portions of Scripture. Uh, it's a word that God is an inherently worthy of praise because of who he is. It's in his very being and the, I don't want to say essence, essence might be confusing, but in his very character of who he is, he is worthy of praise. He is worthy of honor. He is worthy to be uh, seen as um, great just because of who he is. So he's saying, blessed is God. He is worthy of praise. He is inherently worthy of praise. He is praiseworthy. He his name does carry weight. There's a certain uh, gravitas to who he is in his name. And that should be, uh, you know, settled in our thinking. And then he's going to give us some reasons. But first he starts with that theme. And that's, that's where he is going to set off the, the rest of the passage all revolves around that God is to be uh, glorified. He is to be considered as... Uh, uh, holy and perfect. He is to can be considered as the the author of salvation. He he goes through so much in this passage, and and really that's the that's the first point that that I that I see here is that the theme it, it's God's glory. We see throughout the passage he says to the praise of His glory, or to the praise of His glorious grace. It's all a focus on how uh, magnificent God is and how wonderful and how. Uh, marvelously has displayed his love and power toward us. And he does that through all these in Christ instances, all this, uh, all these instances in which we are identified with Christ. And if you look at uh, uh, verse 1, Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the reason why, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Why is he to be blessed? Why is he inherently worthy of our praise and to be glorified? Because he has given us all spiritual blessings. Uh, heavenly places, you might see the word places there is italicized. Um, it's just a kind of, you know, it's, I guess it's a substantive, right? It's taking an adjective and it's making it into a noun form. So, and they're adding places there. So it makes it uh, clear to us. Uh, some translations have heavenlies, and that's a little bit more literal, that it's just the heavenlies. And if you look in chapter 6, you see that, um, and you don't, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. In chapter 6, where he talks about our, our struggle, it's against um, uh, wickedness in the heavenly places. So when he's saying the heavenlies, I think he's just opening us up to like the broad spiritual realm, uh, just the, the spiritual realm uh you know, not not earthly, not not specifically just heaven, but the the heavenlies, the the spiritual realm. So we have all these blessings that he's about to unfold. They're all from God. Uh, they're all given from God, and then we see that they're also uh, given to us uh, in Christ. And that's the this is the first instance where he brings out uh, the phraseology in Christ. As I was thinking through this too, I was thinking of one of my uh, favorite passages, what happens to be in the, the book of James. And I, I love the, the way that James puts this forward. In uh, James chapter 1, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. 
In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we may be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So those are all those spiritual blessings that, that uh, Paul is talking about here, right? Every good thing, every perfect thing is from a God. It comes down from God. He is the one that blesses. He is the one that gives. He is the one that provides. And as James puts it, the, the chief among those is that in the exercise of his will, uh, he brought us forth. He made us new. He gave us life. Uh, the chief among those good and perfect gifts that God gives. So back to in Christ. In Christ is a is a term that it, I think appears. I can't. I it's in my overview of the book. I think it's two hundred something times in this book that in Christ appears. Um, and it's a it's a phraseology that that Paul uses often, and it's a it's a fairly theologically packed uh, terminology, you know, prepositional phrase that uh, carries with it a huge amount of meaning. It the way that it is that is used throughout this passage, it's used in a way that this the idea of in Christ is uh, is a unity of Christ. It's um, uh, a oneness with Christ in, you know, not in the same sense as God, but that, that, that unity with Christ. And I think one of the, the better explanations where this, this idea is developed a little bit is found in Romans chapter 6. So if you turn there uh, really quick, Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3, we see this idea of our being united with Christ and what that actually means. And with that as a as a background, when we go through these things, this this unity of Christ, you'll see that you'll see why all these blessings are in Christ. So Romans chapter six, starting in verse three. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin." So the the idea of the unity of Christ, that that oneness with Christ can be seen in that that passage there in Romans, that we are united with him uh, in life, death, and resurrection. And through that, we have uh, freedom from sin. Through that, we are made new. Uh, Through that, we have a new uh, quality of life. And uh, further on in Ephesians, uh, Paul talks about that. We were previously dead in trespasses and sins, but in Christ we are made alive. So that, that idea of, that, of in Christ is, is packed with all of, that, all of that theological information that Paul provides there. It's that unity with Christ. It's that being uh, buried with him, being raised again, that newness of life. And it's in that unity that we have all these manifold blessings from God that, that Paul develops here. Uh, the first 
The first set I have uh, here is verses four and six, where we see that um, really we have glory to God in Christ, and then he develops the ideas of election and adoption. And he kind of couples those together. So glory to God in Christ, the uh, topics of election and adoption. And this is verses four through six. And verse four starts off with this conjunction, just as, and some of your, your translations might say, even as or according as, I think some even use the word because. So Paul here is developing another, another reason for this, for God's being inherently blessed by his very character. And here's an example, just as, um, that's what he's giving us here, uh, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. It's uh, thinking on this verse is why I started with uh, the verse in Exodus here, because we we have, throughout this passage, we have God graciously bestowing his grace, and that's actually some of the wording that Paul uses uses throughout this passage. He he notes that God graced us with his grace is more of a literal translation of one of the things that he says. Uh, but he has poured out his grace upon us according to his own pleasure. And I'm sure you picked up on how many times that that occurred within this passage, too, that he did it by his own will or for his own pleasure or his own kind intention uh, in Christ. So we have here um, that he chose us. The way that Paul words this, it could be translated that he chose us for himself. Um, rather than just, uh, and I think there's some translations that add himself there to, to bring forward just kind of the, the emphasis that Paul has there. And in this passage, he, he gives us some descriptive parameters of when this happened. Uh, how this happened and the purpose for this happening. So really he says that he chose us and it's before the foundation of the world. So he's giving us a when this happened. Uh, This is a a time frame that he puts into place. The idea here is, is before creation. It was the plan of God prior to creation to bestow his grace upon us in Christ, uh, later on in the book, it's he he notes that it is uh, by grace uh, through faith. He also notes here uh, why he did it. He gives us a purpose here. He chose us for the purpose that we may be holy and blameless before Him. And I was I was thinking about that earlier today. And from a from a human perspective, from a you know perspective of man, not from God's perspective, uh, the the idea there is is really a losing proposition, right? I, I know my own heart, I know my own behavior, and I'm sure you all know yours. And to to consider that you could be presented blameless before anyone is is no small task, right? But it's in Christ that He is able to do this. It is in Christ that He is able to 
present us uh, before himself that we will be blameless and holy because in Christ we have the righteousness that we desperately need and we have, um, as he'll develop later on, we have the forgiveness that we desperately need. So he can present us blameless before himself because of this unity of unity that we have in Christ, right? Like Paul says in Romans, uh, it's his life, his death, his resurrection. We have that unity with Christ. And because of that oneness that we have with Christ, we can be before God holy and blameless. And again, from a human perspective, this is an amazing task, right? Without, without Christ, this is an impossibility, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot get to the point of blamelessness or holiness. All of us from uh, the womb have ceased to be holy. Right? We sin from, from birth, and once you have ceased to be holy, you cannot obtain to holiness again. Or once you have ceased to be unrighteous, you cannot become righteous again on your own accord. So this is one of the, the marvelous, glorious works that God has done for us in Christ, that we can be blameless, that we can have the righteousness that God requires, um, that we cannot obtain on our own in Christ. Uh, truly an amazing, an amazing thing that God has done all of this for us, by his own determination, according to his own counsel, as this passage says, and according to his own love and kind intentions. It makes me think of when we, when we look through Jonah, right? Jonah said, I knew you were going to be a gracious and compassionate and merciful God, and that's why I did not want to go. Jonah had an understanding of, of who God uh, is, that he is gracious, that he is merciful, that he... Uh, shows kindness towards his creation. Right? Uh, Paul says in Romans that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's his, it's his gentle way in, in, of dealing with us that leads to repentance. Uh, this reminds me also of Paul's words in, in Romans chapter 8. Uh, a lot of the, the same terminology here. And I think there's, the I think what, Partly what Paul does, I think it helps explain some of this here, this idea of blameless and holy. In Romans chapter 8, we, we see this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would be the first more born among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And I like in that passage that, that Paul kind of hits on both aspects of our of our our sanctification, right? We have the we are as holy as we will ever be in Christ, but we also have that God is working on us progressively to conform us to the image of Christ. So we have the perfect holiness in Christ, and we cannot be any more righteous or holy before God in Christ, but God is at work within us to conform us to the image of His Son. And I think that is that is a that is a great 
truth to to focus in on that God still works on us to conform us to the image of his son and the the good that he works within us it is conformity to his son that is the ultimate good that he can work within us uh, so so back to Ephesians so he he called us he did this before the foundation of the world for the purpose that we might be holy and blameless before him and uh, in love there you'll see that they uh, at least the New American Standard starts a new sentence there, and there's some debate whether that goes with the holy and blameless that he made that he uh, should be holy and blameless before him in love, you know, comma because it's one sentence, or is it in love he predestined us? Um, and I guess I, I lean towards that it goes with the blameless before him in love, but I came to the conclusion, generally speaking, that if you encompass this whole passage with the concept of love, he would not be wrong. Uh, so it, you know, it really seems like it could fit in either place. And, you know, people that know a lot more about translation than I do have it in one place or the other. Uh, but again, I think that the, the whole passage is encompassed by that, that idea of God's love and kindness and grace towards us. He continues on in verse 5, developing this, this idea of choosing and the purpose of choosing. Um, like I said, in the English here, he, they, they start a new sentence, he predestined us. Uh, this is really, in the, the original, this is really a parsipial phrase. So it's continuing on describing what has already happened. Um, he continues on by predestining us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself. So part of this this great work in choosing us and working within us to be holy and blameless, uh, that's that's how Paul words it in, in Romans, but here he just says a holy and blameless, not working within us to be holy and blameless, but it's that righteousness that we have in Christ, the, the perfect righteousness. He has predestined us to, to be adopted. The, the word predestined only appears uh, six times. It's one of those words that, uh, that uh, only Paul uses. He uses it in, uh, uses it, oh no, actually uh, Luke uses it as well. It's in Acts, and Paul uses it in Romans and 1 Corinthians, and then here in Ephesians. And just roughly speaking, it means to determine beforehand. It's to, you know, it's by his own determination. He did it beforehand. We've already got a glimpse of what that beforehand uh, is before the foundation of the world, which in my thinking is is um, basically an impossible time to imagine. Um, it's I have a very difficult time conceiving of what before creation looks like or, or was. I know that it was uh, perfect and God existed perfectly within the Godhead, but outside of that, it's, it's hard to imagine because, you know, where 
animated clay so we understand creation and we understand those things that God has done and once we get outside of that it gets it's rather difficult to wrap our minds around but that's when he did it so he predestined he had determined beforehand that we would be adopted as sons this this term adoption is not used very often within the scriptures either uh it's limited to use by paul uh, he uses it in romans galatians and ephesians and really for most a lot of what paul uses for background or context for words, you can find it in the, the Old Testament. He's going back to an Old Testament idea, but when he's writing to the, the Romans, the Galatians, and the Ephesians, he's really using this term of adoption that would come from you know the, the Greco-Roman world. It's something that they would have been familiar with. So this idea of ado- adoption um, typically was uh, older men. They would adopt them into a family if they had... Uh, it would be a, a more prominent family or a family that had more wealth, like a higher class family. They would adopt somebody that was a little bit older. And when you were adopted into that Roman family, you would it would be as if a, a natural born child. You would have all the the benefits you would have. You would take on the name, the benefits and those type of things. And back when I was a. Uh, Going through Galatians, I noted a, a few things that uh, that MacArthur had in his series on Galatians, just observations about adoption. And he says this about uh, the adopted. He says, they belong to a new family with a new father. The adopted was often the sole heir, and in cases where inheritance was a proportion, they still could have been uh, the main heir, even if they were younger, because of their position of adoption. Uh, if they had any debts or responsibilities because of adoption, those are all wiped out. And typically a high p- price was paid for the adopted to go into a family, and that's why you would do it. You'd move your child into a, a family that had uh, you know, means, so you get them education, you get them involved in politics, those type of things. That's typically how they came about, but it would come with all of those type of things. So when Paul uses this word, he, he's carrying some of that, uh, that that Greek and Roman understanding of that word, which which again the the, the concept of uh, of adoption uh, lines up with the idea of the new life that we have in Christ. It lines up with the idea of that this is all God's doing; it is God's work. Right? The the adopted does not have a, a say. Typically, they are. Picked, it, picked out, and they are part of a family. And so God is, through Paul, is, is bringing forward that, that idea of that, that new life, that debts are removed, that uh, we're part of a new family, and it is as, uh, as Paul writes in, in Galatians, uh, really co-heirs with Christ, which is an unbelievable concept to think about that we are adopted into family, that we are true sons of God now. It's, you know, the, the idea that we're children of God because we're created is, is not really a biblical uh, understanding. Uh, we, are true God, we are true children of God uh, in Christ through this adoption, through this process in which God has made us one of his children uh, in Christ. Again, by this identification with Christ, 
And this was done by the kind intention of his own will. So God did this because God had determined to do this, because he had determined to uh, lovingly, through his son, uh, shower grace and compassion and kindness on us, to put us in a position where we have new life, to put us in a position where we have the, the spiritual blessing of being a true child of God, one that can we can, as uh, Paul writes in Romans, one that we can go to God and say, Abba, Father. A uh, pretty unbelievable concept to be able to come to uh, a holy, transcendent God as a as a child and a and a father relationship there, uh, because of His great love, which He loved us and lavished upon us in Christ. Paul says in in verse 6 here, this was all done to the praise of the glory of his grace. Uh, Another translation of that could be glorious grace, which he freely bestowed. That's actually just a, a verbal form of the word grace. So it's his glorious grace uh, by which he graced us. So he just lavished upon us uh, grace. And, and one of the commentators uh, defined grace, and I kind of like this definition here. God's grace is, he, is his eternal and unconditional goodwill, which he... Uh, which is found decisive expression in time in the saving work of Christ. So it has been uh, shown with clear expression in time in the saving work of Christ and and each one of us that that believe through the transforming work of, of God through Christ in which we are made new. So God graciously... According to his glorious grace, he graced us. Um, it's uh, translated uh, freely bestowed here, but the, the idea is that he has just lavished his grace upon us, that he has showed us uh, kindness uh, beyond that which we were are worthy or could even really even comprehend in our deadness. Uh, all for his glory. And again, this is why God is inherently blessed because he is good and merciful and gracious and kind towards us uh, who are utterly unworthy of the, the least of his kindnesses. But he, in his goodness, has poured out his love on us in Christ. Uh, next in verses 7 through 8, we have... Uh, glory to God in Christ, and we have redemption and forgiveness. So now he's going to focus in on a couple more theological concepts, and he kind of uh, bundles uh, redemption and forgiveness here. Uh, this is in verses uh, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight.
So the, the idea of, of redemption, it always comes with, with the concept of payment. And Paul defines for us here what the payment is. The payment was uh, blood through his blood. And I think, the, I think the fancy word for that is a metonymy, right? It's a, it's a, it's a piece of a, of a whole that is used to describe the whole, right? That the idea of blood that's used throughout the scriptures is an idea of life, right? In, in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. So the shedding of blood always has to do with the giving of life. So it is through the giving of his life that this redemption is possible. And the the idea of redemption is that of being uh, freed from bondage, uh, freed from sin, to be made free. Um, I think the the most common illustration that we have for it is like the, the slave market to being bought from the slave market. There's a, a price paid and then you are freed. Uh, but more than that, Paul describes it as um, the way that he writes this uh, in verse 7, again, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. That, that, I, that, um, that clause, the forgiveness of trespasses, is further describing this concept of redemption here. So he's, he's um, defining the redemption further. We have that it's, it's a payment of life, but we also have that it is, it is forgiveness of sins. It is the wiping away, uh, the blotting out of he uses the, the term transgressions here, or trespasses here. So it is a forgiveness. So the debt has been paid. The debt has been paid in full. And because of that, uh, like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we uh, now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this payment, this redemption payment through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, there's, there's nothing uh, left for us to uh, pay for, which we cannot anyways. The, the debt is paid in full. Uh, we have full forgiveness, and we are, as, as he said, the goal is in all of this, we are holy and blameless before God because through these transactions we have the righteousness of Christ we have uh, God being just, the just, just and the justifier, right? He has paid the sin debt. He didn't sweep it under the, the rug. He is just in that sin was paid for, and he is the justifier in that we who are ungodly, he can call godly because of what Christ has done. So God is, is blessed in that he has given us this redemption. He has uh, given us forgiveness of our sins. And again, this is all according to the riches of his grace. And not uh, out of his grace, but according to his grace. Um, I think I've heard people say this before, and I think it's, it, it helps me in my thinking that there's no um, depletion to God's grace. He is gracious, and he abounds in grace, 
And so when he acts in grace, it's according to his grace and not out of his grace. There's no depletion to it. It doesn't, it doesn't end. It is abounding, uh, marvelous grace towards us. And he has done all this in wisdom and insight. And when you truly reflect upon the work that is done upon the cross, it is, it is difficult not to see uh, just the, the amazing wisdom and insight uh, of God and how he worked together all these these things. Uh, specifically, just uh, thinking through how Paul words it in, in Romans, and again, I love how he writes it in Romans there, that God is just in the justifier, right? God did not in any way uh, do wrong or sweep sin under the rug, or overlook it, or dismiss it. But every sin is paid for, uh, either at the cross or uh, through eternal condemnation. But it's all paid for. God doesn't overlook any of it. He keeps track of all of it. And through his wonderful plan of salvation, uh, uh, by grace through faith, those of us who believe our sin debt is paid for in full. So God is completely just in that it is paid for. But then our unity, our union with Christ, we have the righteousness that we need so that we have the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness. So God is just and the justifier. And I just, I just love that, that concept that Paul brings out there, that the absolute holiness of God in the work done uh, in salvation, the work upon the cross. Again, I, I think we'll we'll wrap up there. I guess just for your notes, that the next ones were going to be uh, glory to God in Christ for His uh, revelation and reconciliation, and then the the last one is glory to God in Christ for assurance. And Paul gets into those uh, within this passage. So again, the, the goal for, for myself and for, for us this evening was to, to consider and to think about just the greatness and the marvelous work that God has done for us in which we clearly uh, even in our finite minds, can can get a glimpse of how uh, gracious, how kind, how merciful He is, how amazing His plan of salvation is. This this unity of Christ, that Christ uh, He paid the the full debt for us, and that's why Paul just immediately jumps right into this with these people that are believers. He wants to remind them of just the marvelous work that God has done for them um, so that they, they focus in on, on who God is. They have a thankfulness, a genuine thankfulness, a genuine love, a genuine respect and honor for who God is. And then after that, just like Paul does in all of his writing, then after that, he, he's heavy with the theology up front. And then in the back portion, it's... Uh, Practically, how do we live out these things? And so he starts off here with just uh, a picture of the, the immensity of the character of who God is, of what God has done 
to zero our thinking in on uh, who he is so that we have a proper uh, fear, respect, love, honor, that we uh, praise him as he should be. God is uh, truly good to us. God has truly done great things for us. And I pray that, uh, that, that each of us will reflect upon those things and that we would uh, have a love for God, that we would love uh, the Word of God, want to know more about who He is as, as we think on these things. Uh, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that um, you have given us your, your word of truth so that we can, in our, even in our, our finite thinking, uh, know who you are as you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, you have demonstrated to us your, your great love, your great compassion, your kindness toward us. Lord, we know that... Uh, each of us knows that if we examine our own hearts, Lord, that we are not uh, worthy of these, of these grace, graces and this love, this, this blessing poured out on us, Lord. And that's a, precisely why we, we call it grace, Lord, because it's not deserved. We thank you that uh, you have uh, lavished your grace upon us. We thank you for the new life that we have in Christ so that we are even able to, to join together uh, to, to worship you. Pray, Lord, that we would uh, truly live like those that, uh, those that are in Christ, like, like we ought to, that we would live in that newness of life, that we would uh, live with a focus on you. Pray that would help us all to, to maintain that focus throughout the week, Lord, that we would uh, love you. We would look to you. We would remember these great things that you have done for us and that you have dealt with our greatest problems, Lord. And we know that uh, anything that we encounter during the week will pale in comparison to just the riches that we have in Christ. Uh, we thank you again for this time to be together, to look into your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.